All right, well, this evening we're going to begin with a, a famous passage that many of us know uh, from 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 through 4, which says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Now, the context of this passage is that Apostle Paul is warning the young pastor, Timothy, of the kind of dangers that he might face. But one of the most dangerous threats is that of those in the church are no longer satisfied with the simple message of the gospel, which is Christ and him crucified. And of course, we know that that dissatisfaction with the gospel message is nothing more than unbelief. For we know that once one is given the gift of faith, there's a radical transformation that takes place where one's desires are forever changed. No longer should you desire to strive after the things of this world, but should now seek to please God in obedience to his commands. However, Paul knows this simple truth. Not everyone in the church is the church. Just as he told the Roman church, not all Israel is Israel. But rather, as he told the Galatians, those who are in Christ Jesus are now the children of promise. So those who are dissatisfied and reject the gospel of Christ simply aren't Christians. And folks, we can't mince words. Cannot mince words here. And really, this is the challenge we face with those who hold to liberal Christianity. These are those who can no longer endure sound doctrine, as Paul says. But the problem with liberal Christianity is that it sounds so good to our modern sensibilities, right? It promises to keep what it considers the good parts of the Christian faith, like love and acceptance, but then removes the parts it deems unacceptable, like the doctrine of sin and retribution. But what they have done, in effect, is, uh, is, bring, uh, is not bring the church out of darkness, but have caused countless souls to fall into utter darkness. Now, I need to say this from the outset. Those who either formulate liberal theology or continue to promote it are not necessarily (coughs) devious and overtly wicked in their nature. Now, I don't see these individuals like the cartoon villain Dastardly. Remember him? With his dog, Muttley? Remember? Rubbing his hands together, devising ways that they can take down the Christian church, right? No, that's not many liberal Christians at all. No, if you study the founders of liberal Christianity, or even those who continue to promote their legacy, you'll find out that often they're very nice people and well-intentioned. But here's the problem. Kindness and sincerity doesn't equate to goodness and truth, right? As the saying goes, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, right? Their goal isn't to undermine the church, but in their minds, they want to save the church from irrelevancy. But what they don't know is that we're not called to be relevant, are we? We're called to be faithful instead. We have seen the terrible consequences in the modern church of trying to be relevant. The church, in turn, has become irrelevant. Because why? We aren't proclaiming the truth of the gospel. And this is the means by which Paul says produces faith in the hearts of men. Now, it's important to understand 
that liberal or now as it's deemed progressive Christianity didn't suddenly appear out of nowhere as in a vacuum but was suddenly but it was a result of a rather slow de-evolution into darkness so here's the plan over the next few weeks we're going to do a historical survey of what led to the advent of histor- I mean, li- historical liberal Christianity and where it is today. And then, Lord willing, we'll look at a little book called The Ten Commandments of Progressive Christianity. Now, in this book, one of my professors, Dr. Kruger, exposes the progressive liberal tenets of their faith. And he puts it in the form of like Ten Commandments. It's a very, very clever little book, and it's very, very instructive in how the liberal thinks. Now, before we look at the most immediate history and the rise of, it, of liberal Christianity, I think it's important to look at what preceded it. But the seedbed for this change was not over a few years or really over a couple of centuries even. It's important to see where the church was near the beginning. Now, we're going to begin by what is often referred to as pre-modern history, which starts at 312 A.D. and lasts approximately to 1600 A.D. Now, can anyone tell me why pre-modern history is considered to begin in 312 B.C.? Do you know what happens in 312 B.C.? Uh, A.D., 312 A.D., yeah. This is pre-modern history. This, uh, you'll, you'll see it in, in a minute. Is it some kind of uh, council? No, no, it's not a council. But something very important happens in the church at this time, or really the world at this point. Constantine. Emperor Constantine. That's exactly right. He makes Christianity the official religion of the empire. And so this is why this is where uh, what we consider as pre-modern history begins. It is the advent of what is referred to, and there's Constantine the Great there, 280 to 337, of Christendom. Now, before this time, the prevailing force in the culture was Roman paganism. However, when Emperor Constantine became a convert, all that changed. And what a change this was, because it was a complete culture shift in the world. Now, what this meant is that for the next 1,300 years, people's worldview began to shift. It went from Roman paganism to Christian theism. Now, when the world before this was mired in Roman paganism, supreme allegiance was demanded by Caesar. He was basically a god on earth, and was venerated to such a point that you must do whatever he said at threat of death. But now, after Constantine declared this, Christian dogma became the rule of the day, and now the majority of the empire was demanded to worship not the emperor, but the God of the Bible, right? Who was the true and all supreme sovereign. But also, people during this time had a general sense of their sinfulness, Everyone held, at this time, after this point, to the doctrine of original sin, and that God sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to die for them. But also another change was made because there was a new profound sense that mankind was created in the image of God. Before this time, if you were not rich, if you were not affluent, you were trash. You were to be dumped on. But now, with the advent of 
of Christianity influencing the world, there was a change in it. There was a change to where now you saw people differently. There was a new profound sense of human dignity. As beings of God, they knew that must obey God's commands to love one another because, guess what? They're accountable not to some man in Rome, but to the God in heaven. One day that they would stand in judgment before God. Further, all truth was believed to derive from divine revelation, and which was classified in two ways. The first way, if I can get it to work, nope, I must have skipped that one, is general revelation and then special revelation. Now, general revelation is uh, uh, kind of epitomized in verses like this. Psalm 19, we all know this, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. What is the psalmist saying here? He's saying that you cannot look at the world and not see God speaking to you, right? Right? It's self-evident. God is everywhere. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1 gives us another one, that all men are without excuse, right? We all know this verse. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So as we can see, God has revealed himself. And therefore, in the end, man is without excuse. So he will give an account of why he didn't serve the God that is. But then there's special revelation. This is how God revealed himself through his holy scriptures. Now, for those living during this period, God's word was the unquestioned authority and must be believed regardless. This is important as we're going to go through our study. This is where uh, human culture was before the advent of liberal Christianity, before the advent, of, as we'll see, actually of the Enlightenment. It, uh, everyone believed in the unquestioned authority of Scripture. This was God's word from, uh, from on high, and it was not to be questioned. However, Despite the fact that this was the general commitment that God's word was to be unquestioned, there, this is where really the seedbed of liberalism begins. And you might be asking yourself, well, how could that be if they you know, thought that uh, God's word couldn't be questioned? But if you think about it for a minute, it makes sense. Because it was during this time that the church began to elevate church tradition to be on par with scriptures, Right? And really, if you think about it, this is the problem with liberalism. That scripture isn't the ultimate authority, is it? But what seems right to them? Church tradition is really the same thing, if, especially if church tradition uh, conflicts with what the word of God says. And that was what led, as we will see here in a few minutes, to the Protestant Reformation, right? Men were doing things that were right in their own eyes, as opposed to not really, uh, 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 instead of questioning uh, what Scripture says. But as we know, we can't go on what seems right to us. Why? Because as Proverbs says, that when we do, there is a way that seems right to man, but in its end is the way to death. Now, another characteristic of those who lived in this period was that objective truth was taken for granted. This was not 
a thing such as relative truth, what's true for you is true for you, but not for me. No, this was the thinking of the old pagan Roman culture. So this subjective truth was something that these people would have been familiar with, but it was a doctrine of long ago. Do you remember what Pontius Pilate said to Jesus Christ? He said, what is truth, right? Jesus Christ is proclaiming the truth of who he is right to this man's face. Truth incarnate. Truth incarnate, right. you, You couldn't have a clearer demonstration, manifestation of truth. It is ironic. And yet the darkness is there. And so he he doubts in himself whether or not truth can be attained. So this is something, as we're going to see, is a very old doctrine rehashed as it comes up in liberal Christianity. This whole idea of can truth be found? Do you remember when we went through the book of Job? In Job uh, chapter 28, whenever um, he contemplates the nature of wisdom, whether wisdom can be found, right? And he questions this. He said, man can achieve all these great things. He can deep uh, uh, dive deep into mountains, cut holes out of this huge impenetrable rock. Um, uh, he can uh, uh, do all these ma- marvelous things that no other creature in creation can do. But yet, what still eludes him? It's wisdom, right? And of course, we know what he, as he concludes, ultimately, is that God is the source of wisdom, Right? Whenever man questions whether or not truth can be found, he's, we know for a fact that he has strayed from the source of truth, right? Yeah, that's what I was about to add is you find in the scriptures and by experience that the more you sit under the word of God mm-hmm. and the spirit of God is active in you, then you learn more and more. Oh, you, yes. You're a disciple. You're maturing the faith of the spirit in you, but uh, it's a repetition of mm-hmm. hearing the word of God proclaimed. And that's probably where the liberal Christian side yes. is not knowing the Word of God to begin with. Oh, absolutely. And, 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 and or rejecting, uh, they may be familiar with it, but rejecting uh, what it says. Because if, if they are um, uh, the, of their father, the devil. <laughs> and the devil knows very well what the Scripture says, right? Very well, probably more than any of us in here. Off the top of his head. We, we could, you know, might be able to recite it. But there is darkness there. There is darkness. There's unbelief. There is a hatred towards God that we know can only be remedied by the Holy Spirit. Right? Yeah, there was some story, maybe Sinclair Ferguson, <clears throat> I forget who, but said he had talked to a woman in his congregation before service and mentioned, oh, well, I'm going to preach about that today. <laughs> and so after the service, she comes and he asks, did you understand and she initially said she didn't agree with the topic he was, they were talking about. And he said, I'm going to preach about that today. After the service, he sees her and asks, what do you think? Did you understand? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I understood, but I don't, I don't agree with it. And he said, that's a totally different issue you're dealing with now. You know, being ignorant is one thing. Mm-hmm. Not having understanding is one thing. Being given that revelation, <coughs> understanding what it says, but disagreeing with the That's right. That's right. That's absolutely right. And there's been several, uh, many of you may have heard this and you've talked to someone about the truth of God's sovereignty, for example, and they understand it, but they say, well, I just can't serve a God like that. You know, that that is dangerous ground where angels dare not tread, right? Um, This is a holy God and he demands obedience. 
whether you believe who he says he is or not, right? He demands obedience. And so that is why the imagery that we have, for example, in Philippians, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, there will be those uh, in the number of the elect who will say it oh so willingly, right? Jesus Christ is Lord. We say it now and we'll say it then too. But then there will be those who are unwilling, but they will be made to say it. Their knees will be broken. They will be made to bow and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord as their head. And the imagery of it is they're like their heads being forced into the mud until they say uncle, right? That it's, it's military conquest language uh, that's there. And really, that is at the heart of this, that heart of rebellion that I want to pursue my own way, right? The sin of the garden. They want to know good and evil for themselves. It's not just no, mere knowledge, but the idea is more that they wanted to discern for themselves what is good and evil, determine for themselves what was good and evil. And so that is the heart of idolatry, isn't it? And so this is what we're dealing with here. What is truth, right? What is truth? No, God's truth is eternal, right? It doesn't change. And so truth isn't subject to cultural preferences. But it's true despite the fact that prevailing of the winds of the day may think differently, right? Now, but in addition to the pre-modern's general worldview, people's lives also dictated their thinking. Now, during this period of life, it was very, very hard to live. More, the mortality rate was very high in children. Women died in childbirth often. And the average life expectancy during this time was between 35 and 45 years old. And so you weren't expected to live a long time. Life was hard. And so it was easy to live by faith in God, wasn't it? More so in that time. You didn't have all these other distractions. You were more worried about the next uh, meal that you're going to put on your table or whether or not your child would make it to the next summer, right? The, all these concerns um, uh, that they had filled, they had to trust God. There was no other hope that they had, right? So yes, they lived and believed the Bible because of that. Also, too, you simply didn't choose what you wanted to be when you grew up. <laughs> Vocations were generational. Oftentimes, we don't, uh, we don't think about this too often, but our la- many of our last names are derived from the fact that this was true. If you were a smith, more than likely you were some kind of blacksmith or something of the sort, right? Uh, there is a, a tanner, you know, there's um, all... Yeah, exactly. All, all these surnames are derived from the fact that they were generally uh, related to your vocation. And so, if you were a, if your father was a blacksmith, then you were a blacksmith. And if your father was a latrine digger, well, unfortunately, you better get used to smelling bad for every day for the rest of your life, right? Because that was your lot in life. Now, also, people were verbally uh, uneducated during this period and as well and not very uh, read as well now it's been estimated this is a this is a, I found this interesting it's been estimated that there is more information 
in a week's worth of the New York Times than the average pre-modern would encounter or read in their entire lifetime. They did not have access to writings. They were very, very ignorant in that way. Now, it's not to say that these people were stupid, right? In many ways, they were more wise than people like us who have access to more information because they had more more wisdom. They knew how to apply the knowledge that they had, right? But despite this fact, there were many brilliant minds that were produced during this time. All of you know of uh, St. Augustine in the 5th century, Anselm in the 11th century, and Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century. But for the most part, many people were simple in the, in the church and basically dedicated to doing whatever the church told them to do. However, two major movements changed all of this. First, there was the Renaissance. Now, this period brought with it a change in worldview regarding how one saw knowledge itself. While most people were uneducated, the privileged few were able to pursue a higher learning, followed by the paradigm of what is referred to as scholasticism. Now, scholasticism was a mishmash of the work of of the Greek philosopher Aristotle and Christian theology. However, this meant that these scholars would have to try and reconcile very divergent ways of thought. After you read Aristotle and read the scriptures side by side, you're not going to see much continuity there, right? But this is what they were attempting to do. They were so fascinated by the works of Aristotle, they thought, this surely must be true, and we're going to try to make this work. Unfortunately, this led to some very unbiblical beliefs becoming widely accepted in the church. One example of this is the doctrine of transubstantiation. That is, the body and um, blood, uh, I'm sorry, the bread and wine became the body and blood of Christ during the Eucharist. Now, the doctrine was formulated by taking Aristotle's philosophy of substance. That is, that everything exists in this world has two aspects. It has essence, and it has what is referred to as accidents. Now, essence is what it sounds like. It's what things are made of. It's the very stuff at the very basic level. An object's accident, on the other hand, is the form in which it takes. Now, for Aristotle, both the essence and the accidents were always consistent. So if uh, you have a person, uh, the, their stuff is the, is the matter, is the DNA, but then they take the form of a biped, right? A biped humanoid or whatever, you know, how you choose to uh, name it, right? is always consistent. But the Roman Catholics did something very strange with his philosophy, They took Aristotle's philosophy and said a miracle happens in the Eucharist. Now, before the Eucharist ceremony, the bread and wine's essence, of Lord's the stuff in which it's made, is bread and wine. And likewise, its form is also what? Bread and wine. Okay? But after the priest speaks the magical words, hoc es corpus, this is my body, The essence of the bread, they say, 
and the wine changes to the body and blood of Jesus Christ. But the miracle is that this occurs even though the form still looks like bread and it looks like wine. Now, this is in conflict, obviously, with Aristotle because Aristotle believed that the form or the, or the essence and the substance or the form need to be the same, right? But they're taking what they like. They're cherry-picking from the philosophy world and making it fit their system here. So while the bread and the wine may look like bread and wine, they are now actually the body and blood of Christ. Now, this... Doctrine was formulated, or more, I should say more refined, by Thomas Aquinas. And Thomas Aquinas kind of took Aristotle's philosophy, because people were wondering, because for centuries before that, they were saying, this becomes the body and blood of Christ. But people are looking at it and saying, I don't believe that. I'm looking at that looks like bread, and it looks like wine. Right? So they're saying, what gives? So Thomas Aquinas, in an attempt to make this more I guess reasonable, came up with the doctrine that it still looks like it, but yet at the same time, in its stuff, it actually becomes the body and blood of Christ. So you can see some strange stuff occurred during this time. But the Renaissance change to the cultural shift regarding knowledge could be summarized in one phrase. Ad fontes. We all know that, right? Back to the sources. So this actually began, many of us try to attribute this to the Reformation, but actually this saying came uh, uh, actually uh, a little over 100 years before Luther uh, came on the scene. This is during the Renaissance uh, where, you know, we have uh, those um, uh, artists and, and uh, philosophers uh, pondering actually older works, up to this time, Greek philosophy, specifically Aristotle, ruled the day. You read either uh, Aristotle or you read the Bible. Now, with the Renaissance, they started discovering older works from all of antiquity, and they began to look further back. But guess what also happened during this time is the fact that the old church fathers were also found during this time. Roy? You can almost see comparison with the world is now back then because they're trying to figure out what the scriptures mean mm -hmm. and the world today is still doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. There's no change. Yeah, that, that, that's a good point. They are trying to, like in Aquinas' case, he's trying to rationalize the scripture because you can't get away from the fact that Jesus says, this is my body and this is my blood. The question is, does it literally become the body and blood of Christ. Now, um, as we've mentioned, the, here is it lies the danger. There's usually two dangers that come along with uh, considering the Lord's Supper. One of the dangers is like we mentioned, transubstantiation, where you actually believe that the bread and wine actually become the body and blood of Christ. But there is actually an opposite extreme that happens in many churches today is that the Lord's Supper is just an empty memorial where we just remember that Jesus died and how wonderful and we get sad during this time and we remember, <laughs> uh, but nothing else happens. But the fact of the matter is, is that Jesus says, this is my body and this is my blood. And this is, you remember um, uh, uh, the uh, debate between Zwingli and Luther. Again, what was the whole thing? 
uh, 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 Zwingli would say, the flesh profits nothing. And then Luther would say, this is my body, this is my blood. And they would go back and forth and back and forth because they, they, they saw the problem here, that, that there is a, a lack of understanding. And John Calvin kind of, I think, this is what we hold to here, that yes, during the, uh, when we take of the elements of, of the bread and wine or grape juice and, you know, and, and um, wafer, if you, if you please, um, what happens there is that there is something going on. It's not, it doesn't transform into the body and blood of Christ, but through it, we are unified with Christ. Through the Holy Spirit. We are communing with God. So, Because the imagery is, is that Christ bids you come to his table. It's an invitation of covenant. And therefore, because of that, there is a sense by when you partake of the bread and wine, the Holy Spirit makes up the difference. He makes the difference of time and space. And we are actually, just like in worship service, we are actually transported to the throne room and are communing with him. So you can see why Paul's language, him of, of warning that you should discern the Lord's body, that is, he is, um, it's a real thing. It's not just uh, imagining something. There is a sense by you are actually in the presence of the Lord's body during communion. And so that's why it's a reverent and holy act. You better make sure that you're right with God before you partake. David? You know, when, when you're talking about all that, it, it, it reminds me of the fact that we're, we're um, the Spirit dwells in us. Yes, yes. And all of that has to do with the very thing you're talking about. Because if we know the Spirit dwells in us, we're able to have that communion yes. together. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and that's it's, the one thing Catholics don't have. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So, uh, again, whenever uh, we, uh, therefore, when we, we take communion, while we don't, we don't, we're not nervous. You know, the priest <laughs> during this uh, ceremony, they would get nervous. In fact, Luther almost passed out. <laughs> he was thinking he was so worried about dropping the body of Christ and the blood of Christ that he about passed out. He, he was so nervous. He clammed up. He clammed up. He couldn't do it. But now we we don't go to that extreme. But yet, at the same time, if you're going into the presence of the king, if you're going to the presence of the king, how are you to act? Are you to act lackadaisically and casually? Are you reverence, reverence and awe? And therefore, you have, your complete attention needs to be focused on what's going on at that very moment because you're entering into Christ's presence. So, again, but, but see, that... that, that these kind of doctrines were formulated over time. We know, for example, the doctrine of Christ and the Trinity uh, wasn't fully formulated in the first century. It took councils and time to hammer out, okay, this is not what it says. They're, they're more concerned about what the Scripture says it's not, right? That's how they got to what is, right? They, they uh, went from the negative and they arrive to what Scripture actually says. Because what, what's the problem? Is in our fallen natures, we can't comprehend the, the, the holiness of God. We cannot comprehend the greatness of God and, his, and, and, and what he has revealed to us fully. Right? Barry? So on the board where you say back to the sources, mm-hmm. did they get to the point where they had to reanalyze what 
they thought was right? Yes. And we're going to get to that, Bear. I'm glad you're you're bringing that up, going back to the sources, um, because what this did is it broadened your, the, the, the common uh, person's uh, understanding of what was possible in learning. They only thought they had basically two choices. You, you studied Aristotle or you studied um, the scriptures. And, and, um, but during this time, there was a great recovery of all these ancient works, including the church fathers. A lot of the problem with the Roman Catholic Church going into error was not just the fact that they neglected to read the scriptures, but they also neglected to read the early church fathers too. And they started to see, and like men like Luther and others started to see that, hey, wait a minute, what we've been told is not what, the, uh, uh, certainly, first of all, what scripture says, but secondly, what the general, actually church tradition from the beginning has been. So you can see where this is going to be a paradigm shift for a lot of people. So and yeah. One other point. Mm-hmm. A lot of the problem was the translations in what was censored through the translation. Yes, that's exactly right. Allowed to tell people. That's right. Because what was the official uh, language of the Bible at that time was Latin. And uh, it, it, was, it was exposed that many priests could not read Latin. So how would you trust your priest to know what the Word of God says if they can't even read their own Bible? And then the Mass was right? in Latin. And the Mass was in Latin. They were just saying these things. And for them, going back to that uh, Hawkeses Corpus, um, it was basically n- nothing more than, as we would later call it, hocus pocus. Right? <laughs> Suddenly, pow! It becomes the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Right? Right? Now, what's interesting is, is that as these uh, writings came into more popularity, they were able to read them. But what really set things going? Of course, we know this invention changed the world. The printing press. This changed everything. This allowed mass media to exist the way it does today. Without the printing press, uh, culture would, uh, would never be like it is today. This mass distribution of information was only possible uh, through this man, Johann Gutenberg, who invented the printing press in 1448. But of course, we know Gutenberg's invention also helped spearhead the second movement we want to talk about, of course, (coughs) the Protestant Reformation. Now, this movement, while important in its call to return to ultimate biblical authority, it also did something else. For the time since before Constantine did people not questionably follow the dictates of the powers that be. For the first time, they didn't just take the church's word for it. Yes, there were smaller movements of protest before, but nothing like the Protestant Reformation. Because Luther's challenge of papal authority threatened to unravel Western society as they knew it. Now, despite this, the leaders of the Reformation always held to scriptural authority. So this is important to understand, even though this was kind of the beginning of some of the unrest that would come later on, it's important to understand that men like Luther, men like Calvin, and Zwingli, and others believed in ultimate scriptural authority, and they did not question it. But 
as we will see next week, in the modern era, all of that will change. All that will change. Yeah, Eric. Well, I was saying, Dean, that during that Renaissance area also, there was, it was outlawed for uh, most of the middle class to your laborers. You could work. Uh, we weren't supposed to be. Uh, uh, they kept them lit- uh, illiterate. Yes. So yeah. they can control uh, yes. what they were uh, reading or hearing mm-hmm. because whatever the church said is the way to, what they took. Mm-hmm. Right. They couldn't, they weren't able to have Bibles in their homes. Mm-hmm. Unless you were uh, upper class, right? And even then, you couldn't have congregations. I mean, otherwise, it was against yes laws. Yeah, and even so if you had a Latin Vulgate in your home, good luck reading it, right? <laughs> good luck reading it, unless you could speak Latin, which meant that you were uh, uh, you very well educated. Um, and Luther, this was God's grace because Luther began as a priest. But then he was sent off to study, and that was the changing point. It's not that he joined the monastery. It was the fact that he was sent off to study. So he learned all the biblical language. He learned Latin, but also, too, he learned, most importantly, Greek and Hebrew. And he started to see that the things that were that said in the Latin Vulgate were wrong, the things the church fathers were saying, and that's why he wanted to work on his own translation of the scriptures because he saw so many errors in the Latin Vulgate. Jay? Hey, Jordan. Um, one thing that occurred to me was uh, each one of those, those uh, pastors that, would, or um, the, I guess it wouldn't be called a pastor, I guess it would be called a priest. Mm-hmm. Uh, each one of those priests that went off to study studied the same, they all studied the same things that Luther studied. Mm-hmm. They all learned Hebrew, they all learned Greek, mm-hmm. they all learned Latin. And um, so obviously we know the Lord had a plan and That's right. that he used and he, he uh, set apart Luther, but. Um, I guess that's one of the things that just occurred was like, it was all there. Mm-hmm. And they chose not to, not yeah. to dig deeper, not to that's look right. into it more. They just went along with the tradition. Because what, what you find is that Luther had a unique opportunity uh, during that time because most priests didn't go off to study like he did. Mm. Um, it was a select few. And uh, in fact, what you find, for, for instance, like Erasmus, and in his dialogues with Erasmus, and he's basically saying that he agrees a lot with what Luther says, but he just can't go along with undermining church authority. So he knows, for example, Erasmus had the first Greek New Testament. So he's very learned in Greek, but he doesn't want to shake, uh, you know, rock the apple cart, right? And so here's, here's what you find is that there are those who go on to that study, they want to continue in their position. They don't want to upset that. But Luther is not concerned about that. He's concerned about biblical fidelity because why? His conscience bothered him so, right? What did he say at the Diet of Worms to violate conscience is neither right nor safe? And he couldn't, in all good conscience, violate it, right? And what Erasmus did not have that's right. That's right. Exactly. You know, we've heard it before here, especially in this church history. But that night before, when he was given the chance to recant overnight and to consider the Diet of Worms, his journal, he struggled. Mm-hmm. He lied to stand against princes yes. and popes, you know, but then he got back to the Word of God. But the Word yeah. of God has him held captive. That's right. And, and that's right. He, he can't do any, any other thing. That's right. That's right. 
That's exactly right. And as we will see, unfortunately, next week, as we start uh, the modern uh, age, as we'll look at uh, philosophers like Descartes and, and David Hume and different ones like that, is that they're not necessarily led by the Holy Spirit either. They have this sense by, again, while Luther challenged the authority of the church, it was based on fidelity to the word of God. These men will challenge the existing order because it doesn't make sense to them. Skepticism. It's skepticism, right. In fact, the skepticism will be the word of, of the day, so to speak, in, in the modern age. It will kind of uh, encapsulize or summarize that.